As the weather gets colder and your thoughts turn to holiday baking, you might want to open up your refrigerator door, look into that little plastic shelf, and ask yourself, do I have enough butter? And then you might wonder, what kind of butter is best for baking? And why is it so important for baking? Elaine Kozrova, an award-winning food writer and former pastry chef, has thought long and hard about those questions. And then she decided to go deeper to uncover the worldwide origins and cultural history of butter. She joins us now for this week's Please Explain segment, which is all about butter. Her latest book is Butter, A Rich History. It's published by Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill. Welcome to our show. Thank you. And we invite our audience always uh, in these Please Explain segments to join the conversation. If you have any questions, you can give us a call at 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at wnyc.org slash Lopate, or go to Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. Um, you write that butter making was an accident waiting to happen. How so? Hmm. Well, we'll never know precisely because this is prehistoric. We're talking at least 9,000 years ago. So it would have been a product that was discovered accidentally by herders, and typically it would have been sheep or goat. And what we surmise is that the animal was milked, the milk was put into an animal sack, and then it was carried on some journey where it was rocked back and forth. And that's essentially the act of churning, is rocking cream or milk back and forth. And lo and behold, when they opened the sack up, there would have been these beautiful, rich morsels of butter. And would they have had any idea of what to do with that butter? Probably not exactly. Just eat globs of it? To, 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 you know, it was all about preservation back then. So whatever they could, you know, do with food. And, and butter in particular wasn't just about eating it. It was also medicinal. They used it as an ointment. They used it for waterproofing. You know, so they quickly learned to make great use of their butter. Some people still put butter on a burn. Uh, yeah, I think that's an old wise tale. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> I think you're not supposed but to But preservation <laughs> is still an issue as well, and it's the reason why we have salted butter, uh, yes. although nowadays yes. most recipes call for unsalted butter. Yes, but, you know, butter used to be heavily salted. In fact, there's a passage in my book that gives an old um, recipe for brining butter to keep it, to keep to store it through through the winter, so it was heavily, heavily salted. So what we have now today is just a fraction of of what used to be. But as far as unsalted butter for baking, yeah, yes, that's just a good practice because then you get to control the salt. That's really what that's about. Some people actually prefer the taste of unsalted butter anyway. Some but people do. Yeah. Does it? Uh, did people salt the butter that came out of? Other kinds of milk, uh, cow's milk is just one source of butter. Mm. Yes. Well, I've traveled in India and in Bhutan. I've had yak butter, and that was not salted. I've had water buffalo butter. That was not salted. So I, I think salt was a pretty precious commodity, so it wouldn't have been typically used. Is it difficult to milk a yak? Uh, <laughs> it and didn't seem difficult. <laughs> the, the woman that I watched do it had been doing it probably since she was a child and because they're they're big aren't they they're big but they're actually quite docile i I was really um impressed that this you know beast would just stand in the field and and let the women you know milk would you recognize it as butter did it taste similar to cow butter i was lucky to have fresh yak butter so it would have been raw 
you know, fresh yak butter. It was very mild, almost plant, bland, in fact. I would say I prefer cow butter to it. But it's typically, people associate yak butter with quite strong tasting butter because by the time it comes down from the mountains into the villages and the markets, it's essentially fermented. So it's very strong, almost rancid. And don't the locals add that butter to their tea sometimes? Yes, that's the primary use. They don't use it for baking like we do. It's it's used in their yak butter tea uh, daily, throughout the day. What got you thinking about writing an entire book on, about butter? Mm, really, it was my ignorance about butter that inspired me to know more because I... I'm a food writer. I've been a food writer for almost 30 years, but I was starting to see all these nuances in the butter market. Even among cow butters, there was nuances. And then there were these other animal butters, sheep butter, goat butter. And I thought to myself, gee, butter is essentially one ingredient, right? It's milk fat. It's cream. So what accounts for the color changes, the texture changes, the flavor? And the nutrients are different as well. So it was really the science that got me super interested in it. And not all that long ago, you'd go to a supermarket and you would find a store brand, maybe Breakstones, mm-hmm. Land O'Lakes, yeah. and that right. would be it. That'd and be now, it. Uh, even uh, some of the, uh, even in food desert supermarkets, you, you'll find Kerrygold mm-hmm. as well. You'll find perhaps a French butter. You'll yes. find uh, uh, American butters that are made in the mm-hmm. French style. How different yeah. are they all? Well, to someone like me, I mean, I guess you could compare it to, you know, someone who's really into wines and they taste a flight of Pinot Noirs. You know, I see and taste a lot of difference, a lot of nuance in uh, the sweetness, the acidity. Texture is a really cool thing to think about with butter because it really ranges from very soft and spreadable to ones that are a little bit greasy, ones that are more crumbly, and some that are just like almost fudgy. And what determines that? Is it the the, the amount of butter fat or something? Or are there other factors? Well, explain. I go into great detail in my book about that because there's essentially three three things that determine the character of every butter, and that's the man, the land, and the beast. The man be- being the butter maker could be a woman, obviously. But, you know, man, land, beast, those are three very dynamic living variables, and they affect the nuances in these in the butters. So it's the, the what the cows are eating. Does yes. butter change in the summer when the cows are eating grass and yes. then in the winter when they're probably eating hay? Yes, yes, it does. Or grain? Yes, the, the flavor changes, the nutrients change, the color changes. Many things change when a cow is on grass versus grain. But when we go to the supermarket, the butter, each brand pretty much mm-hmm. tastes the same all the time. Do they have to do certain things mm-hmm. to make it taste the same, whether it's well, industrial, the summer, spring, winter, or fall? Yeah, the thing is, industrial butter depends on mostly industrial dairying, and there's not much variation in what the cows are, cows are experiencing. They're really not on pasture. They're on feedlot year-round. They're fed grain year-round. So that's why st- supermarket butter is so standardized. My guest is Elaine Kozarova, who's written a book called Butter, A Rich History. It is published by Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill. This is WNYC, WNYC WNYC.org. We are talking about butter during today's Please Explain segment. And uh, as always during these segments, we invite your calls and comments. Our number is 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at WNYC.org. 
slash Lopate, or on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. And Amy from Manhattan, you're on the air. Hello. Um, I was surprised to hear that you can make um, uh, butter from sheep or goat milk, because I always heard you hadn't. But uh, we don't see that, that butter from those sources in the stores the way we see like uh, sheep or goat cheese. No, I'm, I'm wondering why. Is mm. it harder to make butter or... Um, Mm. Um, and and are they significantly different from from uh, from cow butter? Oh, by the way, I want to say really, I really I love your subtitle. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. No, that's a good question. I, and I've talked to uh, some sheep cheese producers about this, and they they basically the economics right now don't really pay for them to do butter. It is harder to do butter in with sheep and goat milk. Uh, it's a different kind of processing. The fat molecules are different. Sheep milk in particular is is so rich that it has to be, actually be sort of diluted to to make butter. Um, sort of counterintuitive that it would be too rich to make butter, but in fact it's it's trickier. But it's mostly that the demand is not there. I, although I do see more goat butters in the supermarkets. Uh, there, I I live in the Hudson Valley in a small town, and my little cheese shop there has a goat butter. They carry goat butter, so. I think you're going to see more and more of those. And there's a great sheep butter producer in California who's just started uh, a line of sheep butter. You also looked into other cultures that use animals <coughs> other than cows as a source of butter. The the Sami people who use reindeer and mm-hmm. tribes in the Sahara uh, who use camels. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are some of the challenges with making uh, butter from them? Is it the same as with, with uh, sheep that... Maybe the molecules aren't as uh, cooperative. Yeah, it, each milk, you know, has its has its idiosyncrasies, and reindeer milk is very, very rich. And I don't believe that that reindeer butter is being made anymore. But there was a time in the 1800s mm-hmm. when people did it regularly, and you get a very tiny amount of milk from a reindeer. But the women would literally put it in a bowl in their laps and just whisk it with their hands. So perhaps that one wasn't particularly hard to do, but, but the camels, yield was very small. But camels produce a lot mm-hmm. of milk, and mm-hmm. a lot of cultures use camel milk, don't they? Yes. For cheeses as well. Yes. But from what I've read about camel butter, it's quite hard to produce. It's it's very tricky to do. And again, in that part of the world, there's not the same demand for, for butter. Could it be made from human breast milk? Gee, <laughs> I guess theoretically, I don't know, actually. That's a good question. And Alyssa yeah. wants to know if you can get milk from a pig and make butter from that. Well, you know, there are many ma- many mammals, obviously, that, that give milk, but the kind of butter fat that we need, the kind of milk fat that we need for butter is particular to ruminant animals, and pigs are not ruminant animals. A listener uh, on our show page asks if there's a difference between French and U.S. butter. Does the price at the supermarket really indicate the quality of butter? Mm. Well, there are French. There's two different categories of French butters, really. There's the industrial supermarket brands that are very good, you know. But We see them like Lurpak? Uh, like President brand. Oh, that's, President. A bit, that's a big brand, for instance. Um, and then they have this category of AOC butters. That's a premium designation that basically tells you, the shopper, that they're using traditional methods of making the butter, including you know the way the cows are pastured, what they're fed, 
the cream goes into the uh, a traditional batch churn, not an industrial churn. So, and, and some of the batch churns are like made of teak still, as they had been in the 19th century. So if you can find a French butter with the AOC sticker on it, you know, you'll certainly have to pay a little more. But I think it's it's very particular excellent product. Are we seeing it, those kinds of artisanal butters in this country? Oh, yes. That's what's kind of thrilling. About, really, that's kind of what got me going on, on this butter journey is because I was seeing a lot more small produced butters, little artisanal butters, and they reflected the sense of you know terroir, where they came from. So I think, yeah, that's what's exciting is we're sort of going backwards to you know small batch butters. Now, the listener asked uh, about French butters. The uh, butter that we see in a lot of supermarkets these days comes from Ireland, Kerrygold. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> is that appreciably different from uh, a Land O'Lakes butter? I I believe it is. Again, you're talking to, you know, someone who's very uh, sort of geeky, butter geeky here. But Although <laughs> it, it used to be argued that Land O'Lakes was better than Breakstones. Mm-hmm. We, we oh, can yeah. get very... Uh, yeah, we, we, we could break these things that. down. Yeah, we could. But Kerrygold, I, I went to Ireland. You know, they have the most magnificent pasture grass in Ireland. It's a very temperate zone, and the grass is so rich and bountiful, beautiful. And so, you know, most of the butter that you would get from Ireland is grass-fed butter. And it is going to be different than in a Land O'Lakes or a Breakstone, especially for that reason. Let's take another call. Art from the East Village. Hi, you're on the air. Hello. Good morning. I'm enjoying your show. I'm afraid my cholesterol's going up during it. But it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll talk about cholesterol in just a moment. Uh, but I, yeah. I don't have a question. I just want to share about a butter that I've been exposed to. I, I've been, I married a Norwegian woman about eight years ago. Mm. And... Uh, been there many times. As a matter of fact, she's there right now. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of the butter there called Schmur? It's S M the O with the dash on a on an angle through it R. It is some of the greatest butter in the world. Really? Oh my oh. God! So you 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 oh, smear the schmear? Is that it? <laughs> you know, I, sometimes I wonder if some of the word if the word schmear came from schmear. Yeah, I wonder. You know, I, I did this funny thing in my book that at the back. I just. Had I don't know. I was compelled to give all the names for butter around the world. Uh-huh. So I believe that that's why that when you said that name, it sort of triggered something because it's it's actually at the back of my book. Ah. But you know the fact cool. that butter. I wanted to really express how global butter is, how universal butter is. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So that's cool. I'll I'll have to go yeah, to Norway. It's really cool. As a matter of fact, I, I think it's legal. She brings it back. Mm. <laughs> We always give some to my mother and, and other people. Yeah, put it, it in your suitcase. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really like... Don't I you mean, like talk show hosts? Pardon me? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, let me think. She'll be back in about a week. <laughs> Just joking. I, I don't think I can solicit butter over the air. Oh. Thank, thank you so much for calling us, sure, Art. Thank you so much for the show. Thank you. And Natasha from Fairfield, New Jersey. Hi, you're on the air. Hi. Um, good afternoon, in my family, which um, has roots in the old Yugoslavia, Serbia, um, my grandmother used to bring us or, or get a hold of something called Kajmak, spelled mm. K-A-J-M-A-K. It sits squarely in between a soft butter and almost a yogurt. Mm. And I was wondering if you're familiar with that, and if so, is it good for cooking in any way? I am not familiar with that name. It, it makes me think of something like creme fraiche, though. It's not mm. sweet. It's much more salty, almost a little mm. on the bitter side. And mm. it, 
when I when I am able to get a hold of it in, in some Baltic, Baltic stores and bring it to my family, they all freak out because it's just so delicious. But wow. it's hard to describe. It's sitting in between almost a butter and a yogurt. Have you have you looked at the ingredients on it? Does it say just cream? Uh, well, I, I really can't read it. It's, <laughs> it's, it's in uh, Serbian. Right, okay. Um, Your Serbo Croatian um, isn't very good. Is that the problem? So if you can ever find it, mm. I. Oh, just thank you. you try it on some toast, a schmear. That's exciting. Yeah. It's really good. Thank you. Thank you for calling <laughs> you. us. Uh, we're going to take more calls and talk about uh, the war between butter and margarine mm. and uh, yeah. whether butter is unhealthy or not. It's mm. had a bad reputation recently. We've heard that maybe it isn't mm. so bad yeah, for us. We've got good news on that. Our number here is 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at wnyc.org slash Lopate or on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. My guest is Elaine Kozarova, a former pastry student at the Culinary Institute of America uh, and uh, also uh, was uh, a, te- a test kitchen editor at Country Living magazine, also <clears throat> at Healthy Living Classic American Home Sante, uh, and now, did I leave anything out? No, that's, well, Culture Magazine, did you say that? I think you, yeah, that was a cheese magazine that I was the editor of for almost five years. And now a book called Butter, A Rich History, uh, it, it, in, a little, in little type, pure quality. Yeah. Uh, it is published by Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill. Stay with us for more. And we are back with today's Please Explain, the subject being butter, with Elaine Kozreva, who's written a book called Butter, A Rich History, published by uh, the uh, Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill. And we invite your calls at 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at wnyc.org slash Lopate or on Facebook or Twitter where handle is at Leonard Lopate. Uh, Bruce uh, has written to our show page and wonders, is it necessary to refrigerate butter? Many uh, people mm. in Europe don't. Don't, because they go through it pretty regularly. You know, if, it, de- it really depends on how quickly you use your butter. I have a but bu- remaining, butter. But when it remains soft, it's a lot easier to use. To use, exactly. You're more inclined to use it when it's right there. There's a thing called a butter keeper. That's a wonderful little invention, if you don't know about that. It's like a little ceramic cup. You put your butter in it, and you turn it upside down into another ceramic cup that has a little bit of water on the bottom, and that water creates a seal, so it's much much less likely to ferment you know, and become rancid, and it stays, it stays really well. I mean, really well. Another person wonders how uh, the temperature of butter affects the results. Of eating it? Of, you, for example, if you're mm-hmm. baking, mm-hmm. do you have to have it at a certain, is it good to have it at a certain temperature? Well, interestingly enough, I found in my research for the book, and I've been a baker all my life, but I discovered um, Bruce Healy, who, who's an avid baker, he's written a bunch of books, and he uh, says that the best temperature for creaming butter and sugar when you're making a cake is about 65 degrees. I had always assumed that the softer, the better. But that's not really true. You you incorporate more of the uh, air molecules. You beat more air molecules into it if the butter is 65 degrees. And there are some recipes that call for frozen butter. So um, mm-hmm. a, a, a caller wants to know what butter does for pastry. Why uh, is some buttery dough flaky and others doughy? Mm. 
yeah, it's this is the miracle of butter is that it's so versatile in the kitchen that you can get all these different textures depending on the temperature of the butter and how you use it. So, you know, if you layer it very thinly between between layers of flour, as they do to make puff pastry and croissant, you get a flakiness. You you write that during the 18th and 19th century, women built the butter trade. Was it because they were the ones who were most likely to use the butter? No, it was because it was almost universal uh, that men were... Um, Men were not allowed to have anything to do with dairying. It was it was considered taboo for men to milk animals, to process the milk. You mm. know, it was so much associated with birth and fertility and lactation. It was very much a female domain. And I saw that across cultures, that the women always processed the milk. Well, I meant, we mentioned earlier that uh, some people used yak butter in their tea. Daphne from Northport asks what you think of butter in coffee. It's mm. called bulletproof coffee. Yeah, that's a big trend right now. I have some friends who, who like their bulletproof coffee. For those who don't know what it is, uh, it, it's sort of um, a riff on the butter tea. It was invented by a, a man who was hiking in the Himalayas and had a lot of this butter tea and came back to the States. You know, he was American, came back to the States and decided to try it with his coffee. So he whisked butter and a little bit of salt, I believe, into his coffee. And now I, I think officially Bulletproof Coffee also has a little bit of coconut oil or medium-chain triglyceride oil. So I, I haven't had it myself. Uh, it claim, the, the claim is that it sustains your energy throughout the morning, and it's a good way to lose weight. I, I haven't had it myself. Before we get to the calls, and our number here is 212-433-9692, well, let's address a couple of the uh, the controversial issues mm. of the past. Right. Uh, when margarine was first in, introduced, actually Napoleon played a role in the development of margarine? Napoleon III. Ah. Yes, Napoleon III. He was preparing to invade Prussia, I believe, and he wanted a butter su substitute to feed to his troops because butter was too expensive and there wasn't enough of it. So he created this contest. You know, it was a prize for someone who could come up with a butter substitute. And a French chemist came up with this mixture of beef fat and milk and food coloring and a little bit of salt. Mixed it all together. And it was quite palatable. So he, he won the prize, and that's how margarine started. And... Uh that was in the late 1800s. People who are old <laughs> enough in this country will remember that when margarine was first introduced into the dairy cases, it uh, was not yellow. Mm -hmm. In fact, yeah. uh, there were these little plastic yeah. packages that had a button yes. that you had to break, and you could squeeze it and make the margarine yeah. look like butter. I hear that all the time from people. I, I, I didn't experience that myself. I'm slightly Too younger. Young. <laughs> not much younger, but... But yes, because that that reflected w the sort of crazy amount of regulation, taxation, legislation that was was being um, put upon the margarine producers. Because the power of the dairy producers at that time. Absolutely, yeah. So when yeah. did things turn around? When when did people start thinking that margarine was healthy and that butter was unhealthy? Mm. Yeah, that really started around the '60s into the '70s. Um, you know, that was when the anti-fat campaign really got going, in particular against animal fat. 
So vegetable fat was, vegetable oils were deemed good. They're from vegetables. You know, how could they be bad for you, right? And, you know, animal fat was considered uh, the cause of heart disease. And it was essentially a theory, you know, a theory that intuitively made sense because this is solid fat. It must be adding solid fat to my veins or my body, you know. So it intuitively, it gained, you know, it was, it made sense. So I think it gained a lot of traction, but it really wasn't based in a, a lot of science or evidence. It was based on a lot of cherry-picked science back in the day. And now, uh, with mm. the revival of butter, we're hearing also that whole milk may be healthier yes. than low-fat milk. Yeah, we need these fats. We need fat in our... First of all, we need fat in our diet. I mean, I know there are you know vegans out there who don't want to have animal products, and that's their choice, but the bottom line is you do need fat in your diet. And fat and adds flavor <clears throat> as well, doesn't flat, it? Fat adds flavor. <laughs> Say that three times fast. Fat adds flavor and satiety. You know, it makes us feel satisfied, and that's something you can't get from eating a whole lot of carbohydrates. Let's take a call from Max from Brooklyn. You're on the air. Hi. Uh, thanks, Leonard. Elaine, uh, this is Max McCollin. How are you? Hey, Max. Hi. Uh, good to hear your voice. Uh, Thank you. uh, congratulations on the book again. And Thank you. Uh, uh, on that uh, note about human milk, um, it would be possible, but it would be quite difficult. Um, and it's because uh, human milk is albuminous. Mm. Uh, and so the uh, it's, so the fat doesn't uh, rise so easily um, as it does for cow's milk, and that's one, one, one of the other reasons, by the way, that uh, sheep and goat's milk is 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 uh, more economically uh, or less uh, viable economically because uh, the fats tend not to ra- uh, rise up so easily. It requires a little more work. But human but- milk could be done. You just take a, uh, it'd be more challenging to produce. But here's my question to that, if, if I could debate a little with you, Max, because if you use a, a, a cream separator, it, it wouldn't really matter if the fat can rise or not. We're not relying on that sort of old-fashioned method. You know, if you could separate out the fat and then, as they do in the, with cow's milk now, would that fat then be easily churned? You know, that's my, I guess, uh, that was my question with regard to human milk. I think yes, that's, I think it could be uh, mm. more easily churned uh, that way. Right. Correct. Right. But I wonder but, about when you're churn when you want to make your own butter at home, and there are these little devices that allow for it. Mm-hmm. Do you just use whole milk, or would you use heavy cream? Would that be preferable? heavy cream? Yes. Yes. Because just because mm-hmm. it has more butter fat, and it would churn, it, it would convert to butter quicker. It's it's t- it's hard to churn whole milk unless you ferment it unless you culture it a bit uh and it's and the whole milk that we get in this country it's not is not as rich you know as you would get in in other parts of the world so you're much better off with just taking cream thank you for calling us max thanks max we go now to ron from white house station Uh, what is white house station white house station yes you're in the white Uh, house (laughs) Yeah, right. I wish. Uh, I wish I were. Well, maybe you'll get a job in the new administration. Well, I used to be a buttermaker 60 years ago. Oh, wow. A butterman. Yeah, a commercial buttermaker. And we dealt exclusively with sour cream. We would get cream in from local dairies mm-hmm. that had been sitting under cream separators, and it was naturally soured by Lactobacillus acidophilus. Mm-hmm. And, and I, the uh, year I worked there, we made about 
six thousand pounds of sour cream uh, a day uh, in batches of uh, no about three thousand pounds, mm-hmm. and I ate about a quarter pound of butter every day. Yeah. But anyway, I haven't seen good sour cream butter in the stores. I see cultured butter, but it's not the same as the sour cream butter that I used to make. Now, what is cultured butter? Well, it's it's very much what he's describing is that you take cream and you add a mixture of lactic bacteria mm-hmm. and you let it ferment usually for at least 12 to 24 hours sometimes longer than that and essentially it's like making a creme fraiche it, it does thicken and you churn that and it's very it's a very uh, typical product in Europe it's very popular it's just beginning to gain uh, some traction here but I'm curious you know our caller is talking uh, is saying that it doesn't taste the same the sour cream butter versus well, the cultured butter. The, the sour cream butter we made was fairly acidic. In fact, we mm-hmm. after we churned it, we had to actually neutralize the acid a little bit. Oh. I forget what we used. That's interesting. Uh, so it was it was a little bit more pronounced than the cultured butter that mm-hmm. I see in the stores now. But and it's wh- very very good. Butter. And what was your market? What was your market for that? Because it's not typically an American you know popular American thing. I'm curious why. Mm-hmm. In, 19, in 1957, I have no idea. I'm yeah. just a butter <laughs> Okay. Thank you for calling Thank us. Thank you. Interesting. Uh, what, how is um, industrial butter made today? Didn't you visit the mm-hmm. grassland dairy of mm-hmm. Greenwood, Wisconsin? I did, yeah. It's just like a dairy monolith. It's an incredibly large place, and they pump out about 46,000 pounds of butter per hour every day, you know, hours and hours. So that's our supermarket butter for the most part. And the cream comes into that facility, and what's unique in the industrial plant is it goes through a very finely calibrated tempering process. And the point of that is to get the perfect ratio of solid and um, liquid fats within the cream, because every fat molecule is basically constructed of liquid fats and solid fats, crystalline fats. And when you get just the right ratio, your butter comes out much more spreadable and smooth and cohesive. How is, uh, you also tasted butter with scientists at the Center for Dairy Research at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. What did you Mm. discover there? Well, I wanted to actually just witness two USDA butter graders doing their thing, you know, how, how they evaluate a butter. They're looking for 17 to 20 different defects in a stick of butter, which was remarkable to me, like that much could go wrong. And and honestly, most of those defects just don't happen these days anymore. They used to. So I I met with them just to watch them do what they do. But the researchers there described some of the butter as having a cardboard taste. Yeah, yeah, they they could detect that be the kind of thing that I would get in a Mm -hmm. supermarket butter. Um, you could if it wasn't stored well. You know, cardboardy taste comes from the development of aldehydes in a butter. And if you if it's not properly stored, you can get these off flavors. One favorite baked good that's mostly almost half butter is a croissant. Mm. Um, croissant. Yes, uh, right. I know there's a listener that's going to complain that I mentioned <laughs> that T at the end. Writes to me every time I mispronounce <laughs> a French word. When you worked as a pastry chef, was that a difficult recipe to to master? Not really. It just takes time and patience. You know, the whole trick with making a laminated dough, as that's called, is that the butter has to be just the right temperature. If it's too soft, it basically oozes into the into the flour. And if it's too hard, when you roll the dough, 
it crumbles and it breaks up so you don't get this smooth layering. So it's really s just controlling the temperature of the butter. And, and the way you do that is by rolling it out, folding it, letting it rest in the cooler, and doing it again. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a procedure. And you and include the, a recipe for croissant I do, in, the, yeah. in this book. Yes. What are, what are yeah. some of the other recipes you have? So I have uh, what I call, I call it butter's greatest hits at the back of the book. You know, the, I, there are many, many recipes in the world, obviously. So I was focusing primarily on classic recipes that depend on butter for their authenticity, such as croissant, but simple things like shortbread and pound cake and a good flaky pastry, also s sauces, French sauces, you know, the bechamel, uh, beurre blanc. And, uh, you know, so it's not a huge collection, but it's a sort of butter classic collection. Julia Child was a guest on the show a number of times, and oh, when wow. she was asked about using butter and help, she said, well, don't use it all the time, but when the recipe calls for butter, mm. use the butter. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Elaine yeah. Kosorova will be doing a reading, taking questions, and signing books tomorrow at 4 o'clock at the Golden Notebook. That's at 29 Tinker Street in Woodstock. Her book, Butter, A Rich History is published by Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill. And I thank you so much for being our guest today on Please Explain. Thank you. My pleasure.